Exodus 13, 14 to 16. Let me remind you of where we left off. We were studying the redemption of the firstborn. And it was a, a, a ceremony, a, a liturgy that God put into place to help the people of God, the people of Israel, remember how they were spared, their firstborn sons were spared of death shortly before they were liberated from Egypt. God said, take a spotless lamb and kill that lamb and spread the blood over the doorposts of your homes by faith and the death angel will pass over. And all who obeyed by faith uh, experienced that kind of, that sparing, that liberation, that redemption. And Pharaoh and others who refused to bow the knee to God experienced the tragedy of death. God said, you are prone, we are prone to forget our redemption, prone to forget God's faithfulness to us. And so he, he gives us liturgies, he gives us ceremonies to remind us. And he said, the day is going to come when, when no one will be around who remembers that night, that frightful night of being spared of the death angel. So I want you to engage in this liturgy to remind yourselves and remind your children of my salvation. And so every firstborn person or animal coming into your home is to be sacrificed or redeemed. Of course, if it's an animal, a clean animal, a a cow or a sheep, that animal, that firstborn is to be sacrificed as an offering to God. If If it's a son, if it's a person, of course it was not to be sacrificed like the pagans did. It was to be a, to be redeemed by the substitution of a lamb. And the same for a donkey, a beast of burden. Then God says, uh, someday your children are going to ask you, why in the world are you doing this? And I want you to explain it to them. And this is what I want you to explain, beginning in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 13. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. The Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. O Lord Jesus, please dispatch your Holy Spirit on us. Enable us to see and hear and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in this Old Testament text. Embrace it for the first time. Embrace it for the thousandth time, to be restored to it if we've wandered away from it. Help none of us leave without embracing it. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> I have a dear friend I served with as an elder, previous church, who is a very godly man, he and his wife, and he has a son who is a Christian, a son who is a father, a 
son who is a very talented artist, a son who is very smart, very bright, battles a mental illness that he has tragically tried to medicate with alcohol. For nearly 30 years, he's been an alcoholic or he's experimented with drugs in and out of treatment facilities, sometimes successful, sometimes not. My friend has found his son and scooped him up out of alleys and he's carried him unconscious out of crack houses. He has he has paid for expensive therapies. He's had him run away. He's driven him out of the desert. He's saved him from committing suicide. He's brought him into his home over and over and over again. Now, if you were to say to my friend, as some have, and as you who have had similar struggles know, lots of people can know what to do for your child and have lots of advice for what you should do, tough love and so forth, they've practice plenty of tough love. But if you were to say to my friend, uh, you know, you are such a gracious person. It's just amazing the love and patience you have demonstrated to your son. You as a responsible person and, uh, and an upstanding citizen going into these horrible places and bringing your son out time after time, you are such a wonderful person. My friend would get angry with you, as I've seen him do. And he would say, you don't understand, that's not the message at all. The only reason we continue to reach after him, the only reason we continue to show him the way out, the reason we continue to bring him into our home and that we will not give up on him is because Jesus does not give up on us. The only difference between our son and us is he wears his addictions on the outside. His addictions are more obviously self-destructive. Our addictions, however, are no less deadly. Our addictions to materialism and our addictions, our captivation with what other people think about us, our fear of public shame, our, our zest, our zeal for, for, the, for society to think that we are fine, upstanding citizens, they're no less deadly. Jesus continues to redeem us. We are only showing him the same way out that Jesus continually shows The command of this text is that we are called to follow Jesus out, out of our slavery to sin and self and the devil, and to show others the way out by words and by relationship. I want you to see the words, think about the words by which we show other people the way out, the words that were used in this liturgy, prescribed in this liturgy for the children of Israel. In verses 14 and following, I want you to see what he does not say. It was inevitable that someday a child is going to say, why are you, why are you killing a perfectly good sheep? Why are you killing a perfectly good cow? Why, why are you breaking the neck of that donkey? Why do you kill a sheep every time there's a firstborn child in the family? And notice what he does not say. 
He does not say, here's what you need to explain to that child. You need to explain to that son, it's because you know ahead of time he's going to be trouble. And so I'm trying to get ahead of it, son. You're going to cause me trouble. You're going to disappoint me. And so we're going to have to kill this sheep so that you understand ahead of time. Every time you cause trouble, I want you to think about the blood of this sheep. Look at the trouble you've caused. He does not say that. And he does not say, you know, I do it because I'm just a generous person. I, 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 regardless of the difficulty you are and the disappointment you are, well, I'm willing to sacrifice a sheep. That's not the answer. Every time your son asks you, what does this mean? You are to say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out. The Lord had to come in the form of Moses, but we know from Jude chapter 5, it was Christ coming into Egypt. And despite the fact that you rejected Moses, despite the fact that you at times refused to believe, despite the fact you told Moses to get away from you, that he caused you too much trouble, despite the fact that you worshipped idols just like the Egyptians, he came into your midst, he came into our midst, and he brought us out. And he shed the blood, he told us to shed the blood of an innocent lamb as an anticipation of what would have to be done to his son, the last lamb, to save us from our sin. We are only telling you what was necessary for us to be saved. Blood had to be shed. An innocent lamb had to be sacrificed. It's the message that we are called. Here's the obvious application. The obvious application of this text is that we are called to tell our children this. This, not any other message. We are not called to tell our children, you know, if you would just straighten up, if you would just get your life together, if you would just follow our example of hard work and discipline and respectability, if you would only be good like we are, then life would go well for you. God would even love you more. That's not the message. The message we're called to give our children is mom and dad are sinners and deserve hell. And our best works are like filthy rags. And the blood of Jesus, God's Son, had to be shed for us and must continually be applied to us. And we can only go forward in the Christian life by dependence on the means of grace that he makes available to us. So we are only slightly advanced beggars showing you little beggars where to find the bread of God's grace. That's the obvious message for parents. It's the obvious message for grandparents. It's the obvious message for the covenant members of this family. All student members and adult members who take that pledge, that make that vow when we take a child down the center aisle and uh, ask you the vow. Do you promise to surround this child with your love, to pray for them? to make every effort to order your own lives before this little one so that you would not cause them to stumble and encourage them to embrace, confess their own faith in Jesus Christ. 
and experience rich fellowship in the kingdom of God. That's what we call, that's what we pledge to do. We don't say, order your lives before this little one so that they would say, what a great example. I think I'll do just like, be good, just like they are. No, see your example of trusting in Christ and do the same. Now, that happens That message, those words are not only in your home, but those words are especially found in the corporate worship services of this church. When we say that we are, that our calling as a church at Second Pres is to retell the gospel, we primarily mean that in the worship services. We are retelling the gospel here. The structure of our service retells it. God calls us. We respond. He exposes our sin. We confess. He assures us of pardoning grace. He, we thank him for it. We respond in gratitude to it. He teaches us. And he sends us forth with his blessing. That's the gospel. And then it's preached and it's, it's taught and it's sung. And, and our strategy is to cut those gospel grooves deeply into our children's hearts and minds and our hearts and minds. So that, like Moses says, so that it's, it's like a tattoo on your hand. It's like a phylactery on the front of your head, a, a, a piece of Scripture strapped on there, chiseled into your brain. That God loves you in Christ. A, a, a message that is, that is deeper, more profound, more powerful than the liturgy that we're constantly hearing in the world. But we, we have to... We have to constantly exercise our muscles, get our our muscle memory trained so that we default to the gospel and not to the works righteousness of our culture. You know, sometimes people say, why do you do the same thing over and over, uh, Lord's Prayer and Apostles' Creed and think, it's because we're here to exercise. I, I, I want you to be inspired. I want your heart to be filled up, but I also want you to suffer well. And you're not going to, I don't want you to suffer, but I know mean, you're going to suffer. I mean, and when you do suffer, I want you to suffer well. I want you to default to the gospel. And you're not going to default to the gospel by fluff. You're going to default to the gospel by being trained in the gospel. It works. It works for our children. It's proven scientifically. Vern Bingson sociologist, published the findings a few years ago, the findings of a 35-year longitudinal study. That is, for 35 years, he stu- he stu- or, uh, his colleagues studied families, the same families, and their children, many of their children, from zero to 35. And they were asking this question, what are the common denominators among those who as adults continued in the faith of their parents? And what are the common denominators among those who did not continue in the faith of their parents? And the single most, the single greatest determinant for those who continued in the faith of their parents or did not continue in the faith of their parents was whether or not their parents took them to worship. 60% of those who were taken to corporate worship, public worship, at least once per week, taken weekly, 60% of them continued in the faith of their parents. 
almost 60% of those, 55% of those who were never taken to worship left the faith of their parents. Those who uh, seldom or occasionally went to church, 26% of them uh, continued in the faith of their parents. 75%, in other words, did not. 31% of those who went just monthly continued in the faith. 70% did not. Now, there are other things that he noticed among these as well, but there and there are other things that we'll talk about later that actually increase the percentage of those who who went to church or walked with in the faith of their parents. But I want to talk to us a little bit this morning as a family and make us aware that our statistics for attendance here are no better than the rest of evangelical churches. 28% of our membership never attend. 22% of our membership attends only yearly. 15% monthly, 15% three times a month, 15% two times a month. How many attend weekly? 7%. Not 70 Seven. Now, why should we wonder why evangelical children, on average, when they get to college, those professing evangelical faith in their high school years, why, when they get to college, why do 75% of them depart from the faith? If they're not corporately in worship, regularly experiencing the means of grace then why would they not? Now, attending worship is not a magical thing. Attending worship is not something that that will cause God, force God to love you more. It's not something you just check a box for. It is to experience the power of God's presence in a way that can't be imitated anywhere else. Corporate worship, the, the experience of God's presence, the reality of His comfort and encouragement... The expedition of your sanctification cannot be imitated in your private devotions, in your living room, on the golf course, in the, in the field of recreation, in the radio. It can't. God does something powerful when we come together and His Spirit communes among itself. And the gospel is peculiarly, powerfully etched into us. No, I know that some people, some people had their feelings hurt this morning when I shared this earlier. They're good friends of mine, but they have, they have wandering children, and they feel like that, that they did everything they could, and and still their children had not have departed from the faith. I don't mean to say to you that that all of your failures, if your children have not lived for Christ, and we'll talk more about that momentarily. I just want you to want to say that the that the, the 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 pattern by and large is that doing things God's way and worshiping together with God's people is a is a is a means of grace that is powerfully beneficial. Don't neglect it. 
Now, the not-so-obvious application is this. It's an obvious application for children and, and for your grandchildren. And, but the not-so-obvious application is that every one of us should be getting our friends and loved ones, people we're trying to lead to Christ, to worship. This is not just a, parent, a, a message for parents and grandparents. This is a, 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 a message for singles and singles again and, and those who have never had children. This is a message for, for those of you who are trying to lead other people to Christ. That bringing them to worship is the most effective thing you can do. It's God's, it's God's genius strategy for bringing people to Christ. Now, some people say, well, I, I can't bring people to my church because I'm embarrassed of my church, or I don't think it's relevant, or I don't like the way we're worshiping, or we've been worshiping. Or... And, and, you know, I've heard those kinds of excuses my whole ministry. I'll tell you how I answered one young man. It was one of my students when I was a seminary professor. He was, I was also a pastor of local church, and he came every week, and he sat on the front row, and he took me to breakfast one day, and he said, you know, I really, I really want to implore you to change our church because I can't bring people I'm trying to lead to Christ. I can't bring them to the church. Why can't you bring them? Have you brought them, and then they've been rejected? No, I just know they won't be accepted. My church is irrelevant. I said, what kind of people are you talking about bringing? He said, well, I have a friend who is openly gay. And I know as soon as he walked in the door, he'd be rejected. I said, do you know that there's at least one openly gay man sitting several rows back off of your left shoulder every week? There are other people who battle same-sex attraction. And then there are, there are, there are some adulterers around you. A lot of gossips. And other sins that are said not to be in the kingdom of heaven. I don't think the problem is your church. It may be you. If you can't bring people to your church, then why are you here? Are you saying, are you implying that, that uh, it's okay for you to come to church because you're more acceptable? I know that sounds harsh, but... He thanked me for that. He thanks me for it occasionally. Still drops me a note and tells me that. And it's a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge to your pastor too. And it, and it borders on blasphemy for us to think that way. It's not blasphemy, but it borders on it because we're effectively saying, you know, I can only bring people to church who are as good as I am, who are like me. And I can only bring people to a church where it's just right because I'm the one who determines the context in which somebody's going to be saved. And do you know the Holy Spirit has never needed your help before? And the Holy Spirit has done all kinds of crazy things at surprise, including saving you and me. Bring them to this place. If you're listening to me by radio or TV, bring them to your church. Hey, if you can't take them to your church, if your church rejects you, if your church doesn't preach the gospel, they don't emulate the gospel, they don't il illustrate the gospel to those you bring, then find another church where that's true, certainly. But God's peculiar strategy is to save people in the power of corporate worship. Now, I can prove that you can do it. I can prove you do this. Because this past Friday, Barton Kimbrough, our pastor, led us in a memorial service for our friend John. 
John has been coming here for over a year. He was a he is a home he was a homeless man, lived at the Memphis Union Mission. He's an African American man. Moved here from from Savannah. I met him the first Sunday here. And and I welcomed him. I had to stand in line to welcome him. So many of you were welcoming him and I said, how did, you, how did you find us? And he said, I would, in Savannah, I met somebody who knows you. And he said, find Second Presbyterian Church. He never could remember who that was. His first Sunday here, he walked from the Memphis Union Mission, 6.8 miles. He walked here many times. Many of you helped him get here, drove him back and forth. You had him into your home for Sunday lunch. You welcomed him into your home for Thanksgiving celebration. You walked with him through Advance Memphis and he graduated from there and worked at a job. And you welcomed him into your Sunday school classes. You welcomed him as a friend. He had what he viewed to be. He had lived a shameful life. And what he viewed to be a shameful life is one through which he contracted an illness that brutally killed him. The physicians who saw you visiting him said, we've never seen Christianity like that. When I went down to see him recently, your pictures, pictures of children who'd visited him, pictures of your Sunday school classes, pictures of friends hanging everywhere, posters expressing love, the love of God, balloons... And when I tried to express to some of you how proud I was of you, how thankful I was for your witness, you, you chastised me and said, no, don't thank us. We're grateful to John who brought us closer together than we had been before. John taught us how to love. John taught us how to give. And John chose our church. He chose to come here weekly if it meant having to walk seven miles. And he heard from you convincingly. Why would he keep coming back? Because he he experienced some kind of patronizing pity from you? No. Because you told him. I know you told him. John, if God can save me, he can save you. That's the liturgy that we retell. And we do it, as I've already implied with that illustration, by relationship. These words are based on a relationship. Father to son, daughter by extension, daughters and, and children and wives and extended family members. He said, I want you to not only say these on these once a year or whenever it occurs, I want you, I want you to to share this good news as you walk along the road, as you rise up, as you sit down, as you lie down to sleep. I want you to tell this story in the context of relationship. That's what, that's what increases, according to the Bingson's study, that's what increases, and other studies too, it's what increases the likelihood of a child walking in the faith of his or her parents as an adult. It's as if, it's if they experience the same gospel that they hear preached 
and liturgically celebrated in church if they experience it in relationship at home. Children are interviewed in the study, and they said, I knew more than any other, remembering any other thing, I, I knew that my parents loved me no matter what. And those prodigals who, and not all, not everyone is going to continue in that faith, but those ones who did wander and came back, they were interviewed. And their answer was, I knew that my parents loved me even though they left. And they, I experienced their love for me only intensifying as I left. Many of them also said, I saw my parents repenting of their legalism or their hypocrisy. Again, I don't want to, I'm not rubbing salt in anyone's wound because I look across the congregation and I know there are wandering children, wandering grandchildren. And I would never say it's because you did something wrong. That's not the way God works. But I do say, don't give up on the Holy Spirit who pursues like the hound of heaven even while you rest in that same gospel. Let us help you carry your burden. Share it openly with us that we might pray for and encourage you as well. I want to encourage you with a note that I received this week. I've shared this story, the story of this young man with you before story of his professed conversion and seemed like he was turning in a new direction and, and he fell back many more times. I've been walking with this family since this child was in the fourth grade. Now he's 22 years old. It's been a roller coaster ride for them. He's made some disastrous choices and people have given up on him and even given up on his parents. His dad wrote me the other day. He said, I, I, I heard your, your sermon mentioning my son, alluding to my son the other day. And he said, I love how you informed your congregation that his troubles and demons are not over. There's much more to share. He said, I know that my father loves my son even like he loves me. And this is what he wrote recently. I want to thank you and mom for being so patient with me. It's taken me a full 22 years to learn how to take care of myself and prioritize the right things in life. You guys always supported me no matter how many times I messed up, no matter how many times I betrayed you no matter how many times I lied straight to your faces, and there were many. You all forgave me, treated me like you would never leave me. I was selfish and a terrible son to you guys for so many years. I don't and never will deserve you, but I'm so grateful for you. I love you so much, and one day if I'm a father, I want to be just like you. Lately, I've really wanted you to realize what you mean to me. I love you. The man I am, I have become is because of you. Love you. Best parents ever. That's not over. He's going to continue to struggle. 
It'll be another, it'll be a roller coaster ride. But so are we for the Lord. The Spirit keeps pursuing us. And the liturgy we must repeat to ourselves and to everyone around us and to those who have yet to receive Christ is if the Lord can keep enduring with me, if He can save me, He can save you too. That is the gospel we profess and He demonstrates to us in a very objective way in this supper. I invite you, Christian, to rise with me and confess your faith in that gospel with the Apostles' Creed printed for you in your bulletin. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.